2006, November 9th. Today is Lecture 34, Venus Unveiled, which will begin in just a moment. Okay, now yesterday we talked about Mercury, the innermost planet of the solar system. It's now time to move on to talking about Venus. Oh, the question in the back there. I'm sorry, I just wanted to ask a question. Yes, the study guide for quiz number four will be out this weekend. Thank you. Yes, I did remember that. In fact, I was busy preparing it yesterday because I've changed the order of some of the lectures. I wanted to rearrange stuff from the way I did things in previous years. So I actually know I've got it ready this time. <laughs> so I, I could release it a little early, but I want to be sure I know exactly what's on the last couple lectures for next week. I'm still writing them. Okay. So yesterday we saw Mercury, but today we're going to move again a little bit outwards on our grand tour of the solar system. We're in the section where we're talking about the terrestrial planets, and today we're going to talk about the second planet from the sun, Venus, which is perpetually veiled behind clouds, but which has been unveiled through the use of a technology called cloud-penetrating radar. So the key ideas today, of course, is Venus is the second planet from the sun. It's a near twin sister of the Earth. It's about the same size as the Earth. It's covered completely with opaque clouds, and it has the unusual property that it is slowly retrograde rotating. It's actually rotating backwards. We'll say a little bit about that in just a second. The atmosphere of Venus, however, if its size is similar to that of the Earth, the atmosphere could not be more different. It turns out that Venus has a very, very hot, very, very heavy carbon dioxide atmosphere, and it is a result of a runaway greenhouse effect. And we'll discuss a bit about how Venus's atmosphere came to be from its original primordial state. Now, the surface of Venus for a long time was completely hidden from view. It has been mapped now using radar from an orbiting spacecraft called the Magellan Orbiter. This allowed us to view down through the thick cloud layer and actually be able to map out the terrain features of the surface of Venus. And what the radar mapping has revealed in tremendous detail is that Venus has a terrain which is consisting of long rolling plains, various highlands of upthrust mountains and valleys, and very unique terrain features that are found nowhere else in the solar system. And we're going to see a little bit about what those terrain features are, what they imply, we think, for the interior and crust structure of Venus, and some very important differences that we see between Venus and the Earth. They're very nearly the same size. Some of their internal properties are thought to be similar, but it turns out things are very different on this world, and we'll see why that is here in just a moment. So again, beginning with our sort of quick little data core dump here on Venus at a glance. Its orbit, Venus is the second planet from the sun. It orbits with a semi-major axis of about seven-tenths of an astronomical unit, taking about 224.7 days to complete one orbit around the sun. The eccentricity of Venus's orbit is very, very small, 0 .007. In fact, it has the most circular orbit of all of the planets in the solar system. The axis is tilted by about 3.39 degrees, this is big enough that Venus, most of the time, when it passes between the Earth and the Sun, misses the disk of the Sun. But as I mentioned, every now and then, basically separated by 120 years, in pairs of separated by eight years, Venus will, in fact, cross the surface of the Sun in what's called a Venus transit, as visible from the Earth. We've had one already in the year June of 2004. There will be a second in the eight-year cycle in June of 2012, and then another one, I think, for another 127, 128 years. So this is the orbit of Venus, nearly circular, pretty between us and the sun. In terms of its physical appearances, the physical properties of the body of Venus itself, the radius of the planet is about 6,000 kilometers, which is about 95% the radius of the Earth. So it's very nearly the size of the Earth. 
and its mass is about 82% the mass of the Earth in round numbers, which is pretty consistent with its mean density being very much like the mean density of the Earth. So when I call Venus a twin sister of the Earth, it's really not that far off in that regard. The rotation rate is 243.02 days, but it's backwards, where the Earth rotates from west towards east. If I use my notion of up, Venus is rotating from east towards west. Of course, what we really mean is the pole of Venus is literally turned upside down with an axis tilt of 177.4 degrees. We use as our convention that the rotation is in the direction of the curl of the right hand, and where your thumb points is the up or the north axis. In the case of Venus, because it's rotating in the opposite direction, that's equivalent to its northern axis, if you will, pointing down relative to that of the Earth. So this is an upside down backwards, if you upside down planet, or maybe a different way of saying it is simply rotating backwards. It's two different ways of saying the same thing. Why is that? Good question. We're going to see about. We're going to discuss a little bit of how that may have come about in the next lecture. Now, this picture I have here from Venus is an approximate true color picture taken from one of the NASA spacecraft. This is NASA Galileo spacecraft, which made a quick pass by Venus to do a gravity assist on its way out to Jupiter a number of, de of years ago. And it shows what Venus has looked like to us for centuries. It's basically completely shrouded in clouds, and its surface is completely invisible to visible light, ultraviolet light, and infrared light. You simply cannot see through the incredibly thick, thick cloud deck. So how are you going to judge rotation? That's going to be kind of a trick, because you can't even see down to the surface. But in fact, there is a way to tell what's going on downside by using radar. And we'll talk a little bit about that here in just a second. So this is the principal challenge of Venus. We've known very little about the surface of Venus, even though it's one of our nearest large planet neighbors, only until recent decades when we've been able to send spacecraft to the planet. And in fact, there have been a number of spacecraft visits. Venus was the first planet other than the Earth that actually was visited by spacecraft. In 1962, Mariner and Pioneer satellites were sent out, which made a quick flyby by the planet uh, Venus. The Russians, turned out, during the period of the Soviet Union, made Venus their planet. In much the way that the, that, that the United States has put a lot of effort into Mars exploration, the Soviets put a lot of effort into Venus exploration. They really found that as a, good, a niche they explored. They put a lot of spacecraft around Venus. Um, in particular, they made the very first soft landing on the surface of Venus in 1970 using the Venera 7 spacecraft. A number of atmosphere probes have been sent out. The United States has only put one spacecraft onto the surface of Venus, and it actually wasn't meant to soft land. It actually was an impactor, but it was meant to parachute through the atmosphere. It was the Pioneer Venus probe in 1978 that sampled the chemistry of the atmosphere during a slow descent. And actually, surprisingly, it survived for a few minutes after impact. It was soft enough that it, it was able to continue transmitting until the tremendous heat of the, of the planet basically roasted its electronics. The Soviets, in 1985, sent two spacecraft called Vega 1 and Vega 2 to rendezvous with Halley's Comet during its appearance in 1985-86. But in doing that, they used a Venus assist to get into the Halley orbit, uh, intersection orbit, and they released two probes into Venus, which were balloon-borne probes. So you actually inflated a balloon, so you floated in the atmosphere for a while, and used that, again, to sample the vertical structure of the atmosphere and the chemistry before the tremendous heat and other stuff basically destroyed the probes. So a lot of the information we have about the structure and composition of Venus's atmosphere comes from the Pioneer Venus and from the two Vega balloons. 
And finally, of course, uh, Venus has been a subject of a number of orbiters. Um, for example, there have been four orbiters over the last few years. The first two spacecraft to go into orbit around Venus were the Soviet Venera 15 and Venera 16. Notice those numbers. The Soviets sent a lot of spacecraft by the planet in addition to the flybys, but going into orbit, you can spend more time measuring the surface. The Venera spacecraft carried a very simple form of cloud-penetrating radar on them to be able to begin the first reconnaissance mappings of the surface of Venus through radar through the clouds from orbit. Now, we, we'd done mapping with radar by bouncing radar signals from the Earth, but it's kind of crude. It's like trying to figure out the shape of a car using a police radar. You can kind of get the general bumps and wiggles, but you're not going to see anything in detail. The Venera spacecraft gave us our first good glimpse of the surface, but the real pictures that I'm going to be showing today come from a United States spacecraft built by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, the Magellan spacecraft, which had a very advanced cloud-penetrating radar system that mapped it over the period from 1990 to 1994 and has given us our clearest view yet of the surface of the planet. And finally, just in this last year, uh, the, the European Space Agency launched a Venus uh, orbiter, which has gone into orbit around Venus, called the Venus Express. This is primarily an atmospheric studying spacecraft. It's going to study upper atmosphere weather, wind patterns, a little bit of sounding. There's not too much of, there's no ground, no, no real cloud penetrating detailed radar mapping going on with Venus Express, but its role is really Venus weather. There's a lot of reasons why we care about Venus weather and Venus's atmosphere because it's going to contain some very interesting information about how heavy atmospheres evolve. Now Venus, as I said before, is covered completely by extremely thick clouds. The most structure you ever see on Venus is, for example, this beautiful picture here on the right from the Pioneer Venus Orbiter. is actually taken in ultraviolet light, and it really is showing the tops of the cloud decks. And what you see is, unlike the Earth, where you see lots of different wind patterns, what you see in Venus is pretty much one big global circulation pattern in these clouds. It shows some sign of circulation, which is weather being driven by solar energy, just like on the Earth. The weather on the Earth is driven by the input of sunlight. So Venus has sunlight-driven weather, but a real surprise is when we bounced the first radar off Venus, two tremendous surprises came out of that. It was using the Arecibo radio telescope in Puerto Rico, and the first thing that people found was that it was rotating a whole lot slower than anybody had expected. In fact, it was rotating nearly 224 days, and it was slow, and it was retrograde. It was rotating backwards. Again, the way we do the measurement of rotation using radar is just like a police radar gun measuring the speed of a car going down the street. As Venus rotates, part of Venus is moving towards you, the other part of Venus is moving away from you. You fire a radar beam with a very tight frequency at the planet. When it, as it bounces off different parts, the part that's moving towards you, blue shifts the radar return signal. The part moving away from you, Doppler red shifts the radar signal. And so you see your simple frequency, single frequency beam split into red and blue peaks in between. By measuring the separation of the red and blue peaks from the Doppler shift, you measure the rotation speed. You know how big the planet is. That turns directly into a rotation rate, how many days or hours or minutes it takes for it to rotate around. Now, the other thing that the radar could do is because it was, ground it was cloud penetrating radar, Part of the return signal you get is you also can do something called radiometry. You can actually measure black body temperatures coming out, but mostly in microwaves. And when you do that, you get a real big surprise. The surface of Venus was extremely hot. It was more than 700 degrees Kelvin. This is a lot hotter by about 500 degrees Kelvin than the expected uh, 
equilibrium temperature due to sunlight, which says that Venus basically is in a situation of a runaway greenhouse effect. So let's go through those a little bit. The retrograde rotation, as I said, was measured with radar. The rotation period is extremely slow. It's 243 days. That's actually almost approximately its orbital time. Not quite. It's not in a resonance. It's not in a lock system like, like the moon is around Earth. These, the, the orbit time and the rotation time are not commensurate. But it's unusually slow. If you just do a modest estimate of how much a body assembled by collecting planetesimals should be rotating in the solar system, you get a number for the inner solar system of between 20 and 30 hours. Earth is 24 hours. Mars is 25 hours. Mercury's got an excuse. It's in a spin orbit resonance with the tidal field of the sun. But Venus, there was no reason, obvious reason, why a priori it should be rotating so slowly. And in fact, it remains something of a mystery. We really still do not fully understand why Venus is rotating as slowly as it is. There are two primary ideas that have been suggested, but they're very, very hard to test. This is one of these cases where you've got lots of data, but the data doesn't have as much diagnostic power as you like, and so you're really kind of falling back on, it could be one or the other, and we just don't know how to, how to test. The first of these is that, in fact, tides from the sun are playing a role in the slow rotation of Venus, but it's tides between not just Venus and the sun, but also the Earth and Venus, because Earth is massive enough and gets closest enough an inferior conjunction to have some tidal effect. Now, if you combine that with the fact that the atmosphere is very, very heavy, one idea is that that could lead to a kind of a braking effect, in which you sort of put on the brakes, just like brakes applying on the wheel of a, of a, spinning, a spinning wheel of a car. Once again, it's very difficult to test. The calculation is kind of right on the margins of giving you the right answer, but it's hard to actually come up with a hard prediction for why it should be 243 days. Some people have argued that, yes, some kind of braking process like this occurs, but it would take so long, the solar system isn't old enough for that to have happened. So it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an okay explanation physically. All the pieces, nothing there are terribly speculative. It's just the question is whether or not it can actually work that way. And so part of the uncertainty is really understanding the dynamics of Venus's atmosphere. And that's one of the things, for example, that the Mars Express Orbiter is studying right now. The other possibility is, when all else fails in the solar system, sometimes you just invoke a giant impact. Now, we saw yesterday, how, at the very end, how we possibly could explain the unusual properties of Mercury as Mercury forming as the consequence of a very large impact, of a head-on impact that destroyed most of the mantle and left the iron core behind. That's pretty plausible. It's, about, it's able to explain something that couldn't be explained otherwise. In this case, you could sort of understand it in the sense of, imagine that Venus was rotating around in the right direction in 24 hours, and a very large asteroid hits it off-center, opposing the motion. So imagine like you spin up a globe, and then you want to stop it. You stop it by hitting it in the opposite direction that it's rotating. You can eventually take off rotational speed. Problem is, this is somewhat contrived, right? Venus is somehow, maybe there's some way to test that Venus underwent a huge impact in the past. It certainly has left no marks on its, no obvious marks on its surface. And so you can speculate that this could do it, and there's nothing in the physics of this that could stop you from doing it. But the big question is, how do you test this hypothesis? How do you actually establish that such an impact occurred or not? In the case of Mercury, we have the strong evidence from the unusual iron core. The unusual composition is a plausible outcome of an impact. In the case of the moon and the Earth, forming the moon by a large impact, 
again, we had a lot of clues about strangeness of composition, um, particularities of, of, of isotope ratios and things like that. We have no such data for Venus, so until we can figure out how to get such data, this is going to remain a speculation. But there are two possibilities, and the big question is how do we distinguish them? Sometimes science will give you answers. Sometimes all it does is give you questions. Now, the atmosphere of Venus, of course, is one of its most prominent features. We'll start out with the atmosphere's composition. The first thing that jumps out at you about at Venus's composition is it's so different from the Earth. The Earth, to remind you, is around 75% nitrogen, 22% oxygen, and the rest of it is kind of water vapor, and then little traces of carbon dioxide and methane and, and stuff like that. Venus could not be more different. Venus is 96% carbon dioxide, 3.5% nitrogen, 15th of a percent, 15 hundredths of a percent of sulfur dioxide, SO2, and then less than a tenth of a percent of water vapor. This planet is, by any definition, bone dry. And then the rest of the elements, of course, are the argon and the other stuff. There's no hydrogen or helium, as expected. Carbon dioxide. It is basically a carbon dioxide atmosphere with a little bit of nitrogen and then sulfur dioxide and just traces of water vapor. Cannot be more different from the Earth. The surface pressure is astounding. At the surface of Venus, if you were to stand out there, the surface pressure around you would be 90 atmospheres, one atmosphere being what you experience about right now on Earth. To give you an idea of what this is like, if you wanted to experience this kind of pressure on the Earth, you would have to go into a deep ocean one kilometer below the surface. So if you were to go down a kilometer below the surface, you would feel like it feels like in Venus. Well, except for the heat, but certainly the effect of pressure. And we know, for example, that people cannot exist outside of proper pressure vessels at one kilometer depth in the ocean. Now, certainly not for very long. So this is an extremely heavy atmosphere. What's causing this pressure is simply the weight of that atmosphere pressing down on the surface due to the, immense, due to the gravity of Venus. Since Venus has a roughly comparable gravity to that of the Earth, that tells you that the total mass of the, of the atmosphere of Venus is at least 90 times the mass of the Earth. So not only does Venus have an atmosphere that's of different composition, it is a much bigger, heavier atmosphere than the Earth's. There's a lot more stuff in the, Earth's, in the, in the atmosphere of Venus by almost a factor of 100 than there is on the Earth. So something different is going on here. Venus has got a whole lot of atmosphere, and the Earth doesn't, and its composition is very different. The surface temperature is a nearly uniform 750 degrees Kelvin across the day side and the night side. Now here's kind of an oddity, right? You say, well, wait a minute, we've got one side where it takes 200 and some odd days, 240 odd days for it to rotate on its axis and takes, oh gosh, what's the number? It's uh, 243 days to go once around the sun. So Venus does keep one face, does seem to be in sunlight most of the time, or at least the clouds are. And one side is in darkness a lot. It's not perfect. It does sort of a very, very slow roll because 243 and 200 and the other are different numbers. But why is the front, why is it the day side of Venus is not crushingly hot and the night side of Venus is extremely cold? We saw that on Mercury and we also see it on the moon. Well, the answer is because of this heavy atmosphere. The atmosphere is capable of conducting heat around the planet. So the nighttime side is as hot as the daytime side. So the one of the consequences of having an atmosphere is an atmosphere smooths out the day-night temperature variations. On the Earth, those variations are kind of big. Think about 
Well, like today or tomorrow, we're having an unusual little warm spell. The temperature's going to be in the mid-60s. At night, it's going to get down to the 40s or 30s if it's really clear. But Venus has a hot, heavy, cloudy atmosphere that basically forms a blanket around the entire planet and keeps it a nearly uniform temperature everywhere on the planet. 750 degrees, same at the poles, same at the equator. So the effect of having a heavy atmosphere is to basically wipe out temperature differences from day to night and also from equator to pole along latitudes. Now if we look at the composition of the clouds, we get another surprise. If you look at clouds on Earth, you walk outside and look at the clouds in the sky, those are water vapor, water or ice crystals and various things like that. Most of the clouds on Earth are made of water. But there is no water practically on Venus. In fact, Venus is less than a tenth of a percent of water vapor in the entire atmosphere. So what are all the clouds made of? Well, when you actually probe it with spacecraft falling through, they're sucking in bits of the atmosphere and sending them through analyzers, you find that most of the water droplets in the, er, not water, <laughs> sorry, most of the liquid drop, wow, most of the liquid droplets in the atmosphere of Venus are sulfuric acid, H2SO4. It's some nasty stuff. If you want acid rain, here it is. Now, these clouds are interesting. People thought for a while the clouds went from the top of the cloud deck, which is up around 50, 60 kilometers off the surface, and went all the way down to the surface, and so thought of Venus as completely shrouded in fog. They got a surprise. There was a hint of that from the radar, but when the spacecraft um, or probes went through, they found out that the cloud layer is only about 10 kilometers thick, and it's top-heavy. Between 58 and 48 kilometers is the heaviest deck, and then suddenly they emerged from below the sulfuric acid cloud deck and ended up in an atmosphere that was hot and heavy but relatively free of clouds. So a big surprise there. The lower atmosphere is extremely clear below that sulfuric acid cloud deck. Now, because you're dealing with an atmosphere which is 90 atmospheres of pressure compared to that of the Earth, light gets bent by this heavy medium. It's like living inside of, almost like living inside the ocean. Not quite as dense as water, but it's like living in a very high pressure medium. You get some really weird optical distortion effects. The horizon, which on the Earth kind of bends away, the optical refraction of the atmosphere actually causes the horizon, if you could stand on the surface of Venus, would actually appear to bend, rise up and distort up, like, kind of like a funhouse mirror. So that's the conception of what the atmosphere looks like. It's got a cloud deck, 10 kilometers thick, of sulfuric acid droplets, and then below that cloud deck, it's relatively clear. You get into the heavy part of the carbon dioxide atmosphere, and it's clear all the way to the surface, and you get some weird effects. Now, the fact that Venus was shrouded by clouds before people could do spectroscopy, which they knew was going to be somewhat deceptive because you're only looking at the cloud decks, before people really got a sampling of the chemistry of the atmosphere, the popular conception up through the beginning of the 20th century, right up until the 1960s, was that Venus was covered in water clouds. That's all people could imagine was, oh, it's a heavy atmosphere, there's going to be a lot of water vapor, therefore what we're seeing is just a really big, hot, wet planet. Here's an artist's conception of what Venus would have looked like on the surface, a fanciful one from 1918. This is the Venus as jungle picture. And this was actually, this is more of a science fiction kind of picture, but this is the popular conception uh, of Venus for a long time. It's close to the sun, therefore it's hot. But in 1918, they had no idea how hot 
700 degrees Kelvin would not allow plant life and trees to exist, and that there was lots and lots of water. It was a hot, steamy jungle. In fact, I don't know if any of you know the Edgar Rice Burroughs novels of Tarzan, right? The guy who wrote Tarzan. Not, not William Burroughs. He wrote about junkies. Um, he wrote a series of novels known as the Venus novels, Carson of Venus, you know, and it, it used to thing, you know, manly, muscular men, adventures, uh, women in distress, the usual stuff. But they envisioned um, jungles, and that's up to the 1940s or so. But it was only in the 1960s when people started applying radar techniques that they realized the surface of Venus was a whole lot different. It was a uniform 750 degrees Kelvin across the surface, high cloud decks of sulfur dioxide clouds. It was bone dry and completely free of water. And something really crazy was going on on this planet. So here's a, a nice artist's conception. It still shows the clouds. This is kind of a descending down through the Earth's atmosphere, the um, atmosphere, Venus's atmosphere, the sun barely peeking through, because I guess they had to show something in here. But Venus is a really hot, bone dry, inhospitable place. In fact, when we finally got landers onto the surface, this is a photograph from Venera 14, which in the 90 atmospheres and 750 degrees Kelvin atmosphere of the surface of Venus lasted 60 minutes before its insulation basically broke down and all the electronics roasted. So it's a really nasty place to want to drop a spacecraft. You've got to build it really tough. And the Soviets were really good at building some tough spacecraft. I mean, one hour in this environment, that's good stuff. This shows what the surface of Venus looks like. This is one of the best pictures ever taken. There's the horizon. You get some idea of the distortion. Some of it's the fisheye lens, but others it's very distorted. You can see the horizon here. It's not a cloud deck surface. Fairly flat terrain, broken up with basaltic rock and lava. They got a bunch of pictures, made a bunch of measurements, and then pff, the whole thing just fritzed out. It's a really tough environment to study. So what's going on? Wow, everything showed at once. What's going on is a runaway greenhouse effect. Now, among the scientists who figured this out based on the early returns from Venus about its hot temperature was a young Cornell astronomer by the name of Carl Sagan, who actually did the work on establishing the greenhouse effect on Venus. Um, Venus is extremely hot because it has this hot, very heavy carbon dioxide atmosphere. Now, we talked about the greenhouse effect on the Earth as making the Earth 35 degrees Kelvin warmer than it normally would be if there was no atmosphere. And the reason is because visible light can pass through, the atmosphere absorbs the infrared light coming up from below, and it stays on the planet. The atmosphere acts like a blanket. In the case of Venus, Venus has got the equivalent of putting on a heavy down comforter in the middle of the summer. It basically traps heat next to you, it absorbs all the heat coming from the sun, so it's opaque, so it absorbs all the sunlight that it doesn't bounce off, absorbs the infrared, the base of the planet is hot, it tries to radiate away infrared, but all it sees is a completely opaque cloud deck that absorbs all the radiation. And you get this runaway effect, where the hotter the planet gets, the more it radiates, the more it radiates, the more it traps, the more it traps, the more it radiates. Just, it just gets crazy. So the temperature of Venus, if you run through the calculation, is 500 degrees Kelvin hotter than it would be if it had no atmosphere. So in this case, the greenhouse effect has gone into a complete runaway. Now at 500 degrees Kelvin above equilibrium for the sun, Water is never going to be in a liquid state. You're never going to form water droplets. You're always going to keep water primarily in a vapor state, at least early on. So even if Venus started out with the proportions of carbon dioxide to water that, for example, we see getting belched out of terrestrial volcanoes, which we, which we think is the source of the original primordial atmosphere, 
And let's just say, starting assumption, let's make Venus's primordial atmosphere like the Earth's. Carbon dioxide and water vapor is the two principal components. Well, the water vapor is always going to stay as a vapor, and as it gets up into the upper atmosphere, because it's so hot, it can rise to very high altitudes, and eventually gets to the top where sunlight, the ultraviolet photons, hits a water vapor molecule, will break the water apart into hydrogen molecule, H2, and oxygen. Oxygen is frighteningly reactive stuff in its atomic form and immediately reacts with whatever molecules are around. Oh, like, say, little particles of sulfur and things like that. So you get sulfates, hydrogen sulfide. Some of the water combines with the sulfates to form, well, forms sulfuric acid. But some of that, when the H2 molecule comes out, it's so hot and moving so fast, it's above the escape speed, and just poof, goes off into space. It basically escapes from the orbit of Venus. So given a little bit of time, what happens is the runaway greenhouse effect raises the Venus temperature, water stays vapor, ultraviolet light busts the water into hydrogen and oxygen. The oxygen stays on the planet trapped up in chemistry, but the hydrogen is too hot to, to engage in that chemistry, and it simply evaporates off the planet. And so what you do is you dry out the atmosphere. So even if you started with a lot of water vapor, you dry it out completely. And so what's going to happen is, after a couple billion years of this, is Venus is going to keep its carbon dioxide. It's going to be hot, heavy, bone-dry atmosphere consisting of carbon dioxide and everything else. So the runaway greenhouse effect led to a very different kind of atmosphere than the Earth, even though we think both of them had the same starting point. Right? They're born from the same basic material, the same mixes of rock and metal and locked-up volatiles but they ended up in a very different place. Now we're going to repeat this theme later on as we do a detailed comparison of the, of the atmospheres. What we know about the surface of Venus is going to come from radar mapping. Now between 1990 and 1994, a spacecraft fired off by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at Caltech called Magellan mapped the surface of Venus using a, a cloud-penetrating radar system that looked through the clouds it would basically do a stripe. It was in an orbit that went around the poles, and it basically peeled the clouds off with radar, kind of like peeling an orange. And then every now and then, it would turn its antenna back and send a very high-speed data stream back to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And in this way, over the course of many years, they were able to build up a map of Venus. So here's a picture of what Venus looks like from the outside. And now if you could just strip away the clouds, this is what you would see underneath. So radar allows us to penetrate below. Now, the color. I should say something about the color of this and other pictures from the radar mapping. The scientists who did the radar project picked this particular yellow-orange color scheme. This is not the true color of Venus. Venus is probably kind of a dull gray, if you really wanted to guess what its color would be. But for whatever reason, the pioneer Venus people picked this particular yellow color map. This is way of mapping intensity. Wherever you see things are relatively um, Dark, you're having fairly jumbled up terrain. Um, which way this works? Jumbled terrain versus jumbled terrain has a very high um, specularity, as it's called. Basically, it's highly reflective. So this is very jumbled up stuff. This will give you a high radar return. We're relatively smooth planes give you a different return. So the bright and dark is basically marking smooth and rough. Um, one of my friends who worked on the Magellan project for a short time referred to this color map as the monkey barf yellow color map. So we just kind of have to get used to it. What do we find out? Well, people got an idea of what the terrain was like on Venus from the crude radar mapping, both from the ground, the same kind of radar mapping that was used to map out the rotation, also gave some idea of the presence of features. 
The Venera spacecraft got a little bit better idea from the two orbiters, but really it was Magellan that really mapped it in some detail. If you want to divide it up, the terrain is basically all of a piece. 85% of the surface of Venus is low-rolling plains, and about 15% are highland plateaus and mountain belts. Now, these highlands are different. These are not going to be the heavily cratered highlands that we've seen on the Moon and, and Mercury. These, in fact, are more like the mountain upthrust plateaus or continent plateaus that we see on the Earth. The highlands are concentrated into two regions. They've been called the Ishtar Terra and the Aphrodite Terra. And again, as I've emphasized, these are not the ancient cratered highlands we've seen on the Earth and uh, Moon and Mercury. These are much more like the continents on the Earth. The other thing to point out with these names here is that there's a convention for naming um, structures on the surface of Venus is that most of the structures are named after women. They're named after women who were scientists, gods, goddesses of various traditions. Obviously, you're getting into the, the Sumerian here with Ishtar and the Greek with Aphrodite. There's a variety of them. There's only one place on the entire planet that is known, has a man's name, and that's called the Maxwell Montes. It's a very large mountain range in the northern, I think it's northern hemisphere of Venus, that was first seen in the very earliest radar experiments, which were so crude they could only see the biggest platform. And it was called Maxwell for Maxwell's equations, which was basically behind electromagnetic radiation that enables radar. But since then, NASA and the International Astronomical Union have adopted the tradition now of every geologic feature on, on uh, the surface of Venus will be named for either a goddess or a woman scientist or writer, author, poet. So we've got a lot of territory to go through. Now, in addition to these low rolling plains and highland plateaus, we see a lot of other features. You see impact craters. You see volcanoes, and we see a lot of other stuff. And all these things are going to be very interesting to us, so we'll walk through them here just in, in the next pits. So if I took Venus, unwrapped it, and actually mapped out the surface, now we're going to use color here. Green and red is high, and blue is lowland plateaus. So if you want to kind of in the back of your mind think of blue like ocean basins on the Earth and green like the continents, you're about right in terms of the relative elevations. So we have the Aphrodite Terra, which lies here along roughly along the equatorial plane, a couple of highlands over here, and then up at the northern pole, there's a very, very high plateau known as the Ishtar Terra. And then in between are lots of other features. There's even a couple of big impact craters that you can see in a couple of places, high mountains, vertical volcanoes. This is a, a nice relief map. When you've got the radar, of course, you've got altitude maps, and of course, in a computer, you can now give yourself the image of what it would look like to be flying over the surface of Venus if your eyes saw Venus in monkey barf yellow. Um, so you can see the low rolling plains, the very cracked terrain. Notice a lot of these scarping and, and thrust faulting going on. And these are a, a, a giant volcano. It's called the Gullah Mons. Mons is always used as the, the Latin word for a mount. We'll see that in various places in the solar system. And Gullah, I can't remember who Gullah was. Might be Hindu, I'm not sure which. And other mountain ranges and long plateaus. But very, very broken up terrain. We're not seeing smooth plains like lava plains all the time. We also see a lot of this vertical thrust scarping. Some of the small volcanic features. There's very clearly areas where there's been upwelling of volcanic repaving of the surface of Venus. We see these things called pancake domes. They look, well, they kind of look like pancakes, although these things are many, many kilometers across. And so you can see where there's been an upwelling of material that's pushed the crust up and kind of cracked it, and then lava's come up through the cracks and kind of filled things in. So these are, are, are lava domes, but they're called pancake domes because they're very, very long and very, very thin. And then, of course, you see coronae 
in which what you've got is a classic caldera volcano, so it comes up, spews out, and, and sort of sends out lava, and then the whole thing kind of collapses back down, and it cracks and crazes as it does it, and you get this kind of um, circular pattern here, where you can imagine something cracking. This almost looks like uh, what happens to a windshield when you smack it with a rock. You get the sort of stress fractures around it that go around the point of impact. So this is now the, uh, the central caldera shrinking, and as it shrinks down, it fractures the crust around it. And so you see this kind of breaking. It's called a corona. It's like there's a crown around the caldera. Now, volcanism is very, very common in the terrain features. There's a lot of evidence of volcanism, at least past volcanism, on the surface of Venus. None of them, however, appear in chains. It's very different than we see on the Earth. In the Earth, most volcanoes appear in chains, like, for example, the Hawaiian island chain. These volcanoes are all in place. They're big, mounded volcanoes. The fact that they don't appear in chains is one suggestion that there's no plate tectonics on Venus. It's basically, its crust is all one piece. The pancake domes and coronae that I've shown are a couple hundred kilometers across. These, again, are signs of vertical uplift going on. Now, there's some question as to whether any of these volcanoes are active in the present day. There's good reason to suspect that the interior of Venus should still be molten. It's big enough to have held on to residual heat as well as additional radioactive heating, but there is as yet no good convincing evidence from the only four years of radar mapping did not seem to catch any volcanoes in the act of erupting. And so a future idea for future radar mapping would be to see if any of the terrain features have changed since Magellan. I don't know if there are any plans yet for either Europe or, or um, Japan or United States to go back to Venus, but that would be one thing to look for. Now there's the fact that we see volcanism, that we see repaving of the surface, that we see cracking and crazing is signs of tectonism, processes rebuilding the surface, but it's not plate tectonics. We're not seeing the crust broken into pieces. We're seeing a crust as all one piece. Why is that? Why is the crust of Venus so different? Well, one idea is that the high temperatures basically make the rock kind of soft, so it's not going to be able to fracture. It becomes pliable, pliable in a geologic sense. We also see that there's upwelling of material from the mantle. These pancake domes and things like that clearly show material coming from the deep interior up to the surface. And then downwelling, where the, basically the, the blob sinks, compresses the stuff. So the pancake domes are upwelling. The coronae are where you get things beginning to sink. But it's all vertical. We're not seeing any of the side-to-side -side stuff that we see on the Earth. We don't see volcano chains. We don't see plate cr uh, chains of volcanoes along plate boundaries like on Earth. We just see vertical tectonics. We do see some impact craters. There are about 1,000. They're randomly scattered over the surface. But an interesting fact, there are no small craters. There are no craters smaller than 3 kilometers, which means that no meteors smaller than 30 meters make it through the atmosphere. They basically burn up. Furthermore, the huge lack of craters, a thousand is not very much, is suggestive that 80% of the surface has been repaved probably in the last half billion years. So in the last 500 million years, something happened to Venus which nearly completely repaved its entire surface, wiping out whatever old craters there were. Now, there's two competing ideas for what's going on. One is that because the crust is so soft and the interior is still kind of molten, any crater you do make is going to get rapidly filled in by lava and erased. The other possibility is that, in fact, what happens is something happened really catastrophically on Venus about 500 million years ago and led to volcanism across the entire surface of the planet, which basically filled in every ancient crater and essentially repaved and reset all the clocks. 
Now, we can't tell unless we can get to Venus and bring rocks back for radioactive age dating and looking at the actual composition of the rock. So we've got a lot of competing ideas, but it's going to require data that's going to require physical return of rock in order to test. But we're seeing a very different kind of history than we saw on Earth, part of it perhaps due to the unusual temperatures. Here's one of these impact craters, Danilova. Gravity is big, so it's big and flat, but you can see how very quickly filled it in, in it is here by the smooth terrain that you see with the dark radar return. And otherwise, you see the ejecta blanket around it. These are unusual. It has to be a really big crater because it's got to be a really big rock to survive the passage through the heavy atmosphere. So let's do a very quick comparison of Venus and the Earth. Both of them show tectonism. Both of them show repaving of their continental surfaces. Venus is basically all one continent. On the Earth, this appears to be an ongoing process. In fact, it is an ongoing process. There are new crusts coming up in the places where the plates are pulling apart. We see subduction. We see new volcanism. On Venus, there's some evidence from the cratering record that most of the repaving happened about a half a billion years ago and is largely shut down, although there's still some suggestion that there's still activity going on at a low level. Tectonic activity on the Earth is very different compared to Venus. On the Earth, what we get a lot of is what geologists call lateral recycling. We see the sliding motions of the plates as the plates move and grind against each other. You get subduction and you get divergent boundaries producing new crust. That's all due to lateral motions, things moving side to side. On Venus, the recycling is primarily vertical. You get upwelling of material from below pouring out onto new lava plains. And as stuff goes up in one place, it's got to come down in another. And when that does, that pulls material down into, into a compression area. So upwelling and downwelling gives you vertical recycling, whereas in the Earth, it's lateral recycling. People think this may be related to the lack of water in the crust of Venus. Lack of water in minerals makes the minerals much more soft and pliable. The heat will also make the rock more pliable. So you end up with a crust that isn't as brittle as the Earth's crust. It can't break into plates. And so the only thing it can be is one gigantic piece. So if we peeled off the atmosphere of the Earth and, Mar and, and, and Venus and looked at them, the Earth and Venus would look something like this. Now, the atmospheres are quite different. The Earth is a warm, lightweight, moist nitrogen and oxygen atmosphere, whereas Venus has a hot, heavy, very dry carbon dioxide atmosphere. Why are they so different? Well, they probably had the same starting point, but Venus had a runaway greenhouse effect that completely altered the structure of its atmosphere. It removed all the water, and it stayed hot and heavy. There was no way for carbon dioxide to rain out into oceans and crust rocks. On the Earth, that was what, where all the carbon dioxide went. So the Earth should have an atmosphere like Venus's, but for the presence of liquid water. So once again, we see a similar starting point, but a different evolution. We'll come back to this theme later when we compare all the planets after we add Mars on on Monday. Just have a good weekend. See you all tomorrow. See you all on Monday.